can open their Bibles to Judges chapter 1. And I want to thank everybody this morning who participated in Donuts for Dad. I have a feeling there's donuts left over. And uh, if, you, uh, if there are, and I'm sure there are, there's probably some in the basement. And so uh, take advantage of that before we leave today. If you still have, want a snack before you have lunch. Uh, in the meantime, if you're in Judges 1, I'll be reading from verse 1 in a moment. Uh, we are finished the book of Colossians. And so uh, since we spent some time in the Old Testament, to have a, uh, the New Testament, to have a steady diet of God's word, we're going to move to the Old Testament and pray that the Lord uh, uses this in our lives in the weeks and months ahead. So Judges 1, and I'll read from verse 1. And Father, we're so thankful that uh, your word is true, it's powerful. Father, that whether we're uh, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, whether we're in a narrative or whether we're in an epistle, uh, whether in the poetry or the Psalms, uh, whether in the Gospels, uh, Lord, there's so much here for us to learn more and more about who you are, uh, to learn more and more about our own uh, sin before you, Father, and the redemption that you provide in Christ. And certainly the book of Judges is no different. We just ask you that you would uh, give us wisdom and grace and understanding, and again, we pray that you would open our eyes uh, to behold wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Judges 1, and I'll read from verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek, at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adabezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I've done so, God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron form, was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. Uh, we'll stop there. And may God bless the reading of his word. If, upon reading that text of scripture, if you have some immediate questions uh, that I think that would indicate we have some work to do to get ourselves up to speed when it comes to starting the book of Judges. Because some of you might be wondering, who is Joshua? Some of you might be wondering, uh, what are Canaanites? Uh, what is a Perizzite? What's the significance of Judah going first? Uh, what about this whole thing about this guy having his thumbs and his big toes cut off? And so I hopefully we'll be able to answer some of these questions. But I think what this does more than anything else is helps us to see that we need some clarification before we actually get into the book of Judges. 
So I'm going to take the time for the next little while to give a historical context so we'll know what's going on in the book of Judges. And you'll notice that today I actually won't say anything about any of the judges in particular because we're not even introduced to our first judge until chapter 3. So the next few weeks they'll be introductory in a variety of ways. There'll be a lot of questions that come up because of this book that I won't answer all of them today. But hopefully as the weeks progress, you'll have more and more understanding of all that's taking place in this wonderful God-inspired book. So today is going to be very instructional. Um, and you'll need your thinking caps on, your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew. But I think you'll get a lot more out of this if you follow along as I read. We'll be looking at a lot more te text than we normally do because we have to go backwards in order to get, for get to where we are right now. So please follow along. We'll be looking at some of the key and significant passages that bring us up to the book of Judges. Now we know from Judges chapter 1, verse 1, that the book begins with the death of Joshua. Now, I don't want to assume that everybody knows exactly what that means. So we're going to start with a timeline, and then we'll look at three significant parts of the Old Testament that we should all understand. One is the Abrahamic covenant. Two is the command that the nation of Israel was given to destroy all the Canaanites in the land. And then thirdly, we need to look at the conditions that God gave the people for them to have success. So hopefully we'll be able to look at those four things today. Historical context, uh, the covenant God made with Abraham, um, the um, command for Israel to destroy all the inhabitants of the land, and then the conditions that God gave Israel for success. The first five books of the Bible are called the book or the law of Moses. And along with laying out the ceremonial and the sacrificial and the moral law or the Ten Commandments, along with that, it also traces the history from our first parents, Adam and Eve, all the way until Israel came into the Promised Land. And it covers about 2,500 years. Now, if you're familiar at all with the book of Genesis, you know that the foundation of the history of the nation of Israel begins with the calling and the covenant that God made with Abraham and then subsequently made with his son Isaac and his son Jacob and then it chronicles the the life and the history of of the 12 sons of Jacob one of those 12 sons you are aware was Joseph and through God's providential sovereign circumstances uh, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and he's brought to Egypt now, if you're not familiar with the story I did say that sold into slavery by his brothers all of you have children, most of you have children, you all have uh, battles in your home. I don't think any of your kids have yet sold anyone into slavery. They may have thought about it, but it hasn't quite happened yet, but that's exactly what happened. And the brothers, after they sold Joseph into slavery, told their dad he had been killed by a wild animal. Now, through no wrongdoing on his own, he is put in an Egyptian prison and he's eventually brought out of that prison, and Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in the entire nation of Egypt, second only behind Pharaoh. He's placed in that position because he interpreted a dream that Pharaoh had about a coming famine. Joseph advised him that because of the coming famine, you really needed someone to oversee the collection of grain during the bountiful years so when the famine comes, you'll have enough grain to feed the people. 
And when Pharaoh heard Joseph give that idea, he immediately thought, you know, you're our guy. So he placed Joseph in that position to organize all the collection of the grain. All of this part of God's plan. All of this part of God's providential sovereignty. And all of this so that God could preserve the family of Abraham when the family came. Because it was Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who would eventually move to Egypt during this difficult time. Within a year or two after the famine hit, there was no food in the land of Canaan where Jacob and his family lived, and Jacob had to leave there to find the food in Egypt. So he sends his ten sons to go to Egypt to buy grain. And as they're traveling to Egypt, they go to purchase grain, and they end up being face-to-face with their brother Joseph, even though they don't recognize him. Joseph recognizes them. It had been 13 years since he was sold into slavery, and I think in one of the most moving parts of all of Scripture, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that God sent me before you to preserve life. It's just a wonderful story in the latter part of the book of Genesis. Now, at that point, because of the famine, Joseph tells his brothers, bring your father to Egypt because the famine has just started. Bring him here and I will take care of them. Jacob finds out that Joseph is actually alive and he moves his entire family to Egypt so that they could be preserved and under Joseph's care. Now, just so you'll see this for yourself, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 46. Genesis 46. This is going to be a, do your fingers through the yellow pages here as we walk through our Old Testament. In Genesis 46, in verse 26, God gives account of the people in Jacob's family who made the journey to Egypt. The verses prior to verse 26 give the names of all the sons and their children, but we'll just start with a summary in verse 26. The writer writes, all the persons, just this is 46, 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So you have a family of 70. They're now in Egypt. They're descendants of Abraham. And turn over just a few pages to Exodus 1, and you'll see the story continue in Exodus chapter 1, and I'll read from verse 7. Exodus 1, verse 7, Jacob brings his family. There's 70 people in the very beginning. The story continues, and verse 7 of Exodus 1 says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. This is while they were in Egypt. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Small family of 70 growing. We discover in verse 8, at this point, there's a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And since the people had prospered and multiplied and become great in Egypt, verse 13 tells us the Egyptians made made slaves out of the Israelites and their lives were now bitter because of forced labor. Now, why, why did all this happen? Why did God remove Jacob from the land of Canaan and sent him to Egypt only to become forced laborers. God had a plan. God had a plan for his people that had been in place long before this ever happened. So go back to Genesis 15 and I want you to see it. I want you to go to Genesis 15 
And I want you to see where God is talking to Abraham in verse 13, explaining the plan for the future. Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. He's talking about what we just read in Egypt. Now verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, all that took place in Egypt was part of God's plan. The land they left, we'll see in a moment, was promised to Abraham, but the sin of those who inhabited the land, mentioned in here by the Amorites, God said wasn't complete yet. God's a patient God. God's a long-suffering God. And judgments on the Amorites was coming, but I guess you could almost say that they hadn't sinned enough yet to experience all of God's wrath, or you could say God was giving them more time to repent. But either way, there's this waiting period of 400 years before Abraham's descendants could move into the land that was promised to them. And when that waiting period was over, then God began to move and God began to rescue his people. And this is exactly what happened. Turn over to Exodus 2 for a minute. Exodus 2, and I'll read from verse 23. Exodus 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God's hearing their cry. He's hearing their groaning. And this is moving him into action to do what he promised to do. And he's beginning to act now at the time period when those 400 years for the Amorites to fill up their sin is complete. The deliverance that God promised begins actually in Exodus 3 in the next chapter. And that's the story of Moses in the burning bush. It's before the burning bush that God calls Moses to be the deliverer of his people. Now, this is right around 1500 B.C., and this leads into Moses confronting Pharaoh and asking Pharaoh to let God's people go, and then it moves into the ten plagues, and then moves into the, the, the Passover or the killing of the firstborn in Egypt when all of the Israelite families had blood from the sacrificial lamb on the doorposts of their house to save them from the death angel as the death angel passed over them. And then you had the deliverance with the parting of the Red Sea. And so the people are now becoming free from Egyptian bondage. God delivering his people from Egyptian bondage was the first part of the plan. But the second part of the plan was to bring them into the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this brings us back to the verse I read earlier from Exodus chapter 2. Verse 23, I want to read it again. Exodus 2, verse 23. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, 
and with Jacob. The covenant that God made with Abraham is first mentioned in Genesis 12. You can go ahead and turn there. Genesis 12, and I'll read from verse 1. The covenant that God made with Abraham states in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Old Testament commentator Dale Ralph Davis, he calls this the quad promise. It's something we should always be mindful of whenever we're reading the Old Testament in particular. The quad promise, the four things he promised. God promised Abraham a people. He will be a great nation. God promised Abraham protection. God will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. God promised Abraham a program that in him all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then finally, God promised Abraham a place. God promised that he would give him a land. And it's the land promise that we will look more carefully at as we focus our attention on the book of Judges. The land was promised to Abraham was currently inhabited by other nations. And if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy 7, I want to show you the command that God gave the nation of Israel to conquer the people and take over the land. Deuteronomy 7, you'll see there are certain conditions that had to be met in order for the people to have God's blessing. So on the one hand, uh, it's going to show how important it was that they obey him in terms of how they conquer the land, and then secondly, how they obey him in the future to uh, have success. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Adasites. That's not in there, but I thought I'd add it. Seven nations, more numerous and mighty than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, 
The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. He shall therefore be careful. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So God promised Abraham that the land that was currently inhabited by these various people groups would be his or would be his descendants. And the way the land would be taken over was going to be through God using the nation of Israel to bring judgment on the inhabitants. Now, if you turn over a few pages to Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, this is really important. You'll understand why the nations in the land of Canaan had to be judged. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. Why the nations of the land of Canaan were judged. 18, 9. When you come into the land the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. The nations in the land were godless. They're involved in blatant wickedness, and God did not want the nation of Israel, his chosen people, to walk in their ways. The destruction of the people in the land was a judgment on those living, and it was to protect the nation of Israel from going down their paths. Now, remember I read earlier the sin of the Amorites had not been complete. And by the time the nation of Israel is coming out of Egypt, the time had been complete. God's judgments coming upon them and his instruments for judgment will be the nation of Israel. Now, we're going to come back to that in the weeks ahead. That may create a lot of questions, but we're going to come back to that. Not today, though. Along with that, you surely notice the doctrine of election, so clearly stated in the Old Testament. Did God choose Abraham or the nation of Israel because they were good or because they were better than the nations around them? Or did God choose them because they had the most potential? Or did he choose them because they knew that in advance that he would choose, they would choose them and follow them? Well, no. Why did he choose them? Well, back in chapter 7, verse 7. It was not because you're more in number than any other people the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. This applies to us as well. It's not because of anything in us. If you're in Christ, God chose you because he chose you. He loves you because he loves you. He set his love on Abraham and the nation of Israel to establish a covenant with him and his descendants. And it was designed to transcend all people because the program that was in Abraham all, all, that all the nations of the world would be blessed 
It was in Abraham or in his seed or through one of his descendants or, as we know, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the nations would be blessed. In Christ, every nation, every tribe, every people group would be blessed. And the promise of that blessing began with this quad promise and the blessing of Abraham or the Abrahamic covenant. So as the nation entered the land that God promised, God's judgment was to be carried out on its inhabitants. So one of the single most important parts of the conquest was the nation of Israel was to utterly destroy the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and so on. They were to devote them to complete destruction in verse 2. They were to make no covenants and show no mercy and not intermarry and not serve their gods. And if they did, God's anger and his wrath would be kindled against them and God would destroy them quickly. God promised them the land and we would be with them as they drove out the inhabitants. But their victory was contingent on their obedience to the covenant God made with them. And that's stated throughout the book of Deuteronomy and throughout the book of Joshua. Now, if we had time and we wanted to work our way through all of Exodus and Numbers, we would discover that the original conquest of the land was supposed to be immediately following the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. The nation was to be delivered from Egypt, and Moses was supposed to immediately lead them into the promised land. Well, remember, to prepare to go into the promised land, he sent out 12 spies, one spy from each tribe of Israel. And when they came back from spying out the land, unfortunately, two of the 12 spies believed, yes, we can conquer the land, and yet one, 10 believed they couldn't. In Numbers chapter 13, this is pretty much the last major section we'll read. Look at Numbers 13. Let's listen in on the report that the spies were having this conversation with Moses, having the conversation with the nation of Israel. And uh, before verse 28, they had just reported on how bountiful and how beautiful the land was. They had been there for 40 days. They had seen everything they could possibly see. They brought back They brought back grapes. They brought back pomegranates. They brought back all kinds of things from the land. They said the land is wonderful, and the land is bountiful, and the land is beautiful. And then in verse 28, you have this looming word. It says, however, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, oh, we are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land, that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we had gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw are of great height. And, they, and we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. And only Joshua and only Caleb believed that God would deliver the people into their hands. 
the concern about the giants, all the concern about the sons of Anak, and Caleb is unconcerned whatsoever. Let's go. Take the land. God is with us. Bigger they are, the harder they fall. God is with us. We can do this. And yet the people of Israel believed the report of the ten spies. So they never tried to enter. And on the heels of that, God literally gives them what they wanted. And since they believed that they could not take the land, God didn't even attempt to send them in the land. And he promised, he promised that nobody except Joshua and Caleb, 20 year, years old and upward, would enter the land, but for the, they would all die in the wilderness over the next 40 years. And so for 40 years they wander. 40 years they wander in the wilderness, eating manna on a daily basis. And after those 40 years, now it's time for the Israelites to move. Now it's time for them to come in and conquer the land that God promised would be theirs. Moses, we find, was not able to enter because of his own sin and disobedience, so he got a chance to look at the land from afar. But Joshua, his understudy, his young lieutenant, the one he mentored, he's going to be the one that brings the people into the land that God had promised them. And by the time we arrive at the book of Joshua, the nation, a new generation, since everybody who was 20 years old and upward, they're all dead. Now this new generation is ready for the promised land, and Joshua is going to lead them. The promise is still the same. The land is there for the taking. God promised the land was already given to them. To take the land, they had to annihilate and destroy the inhabitants of the land. To take the land, they had to walk faithfully with God. And Joshua and the nation did both. We know that it started with the Battle of Jericho. And the report we have uh, in, in Joshua 6, verse 21, I'll just read one verse. Uh, you, you can read it for yourself. The report we have after they marched around the city for six times and they marked the seventh day, they marched around seven times. They jumped, the walls fell, and the report in Joshua 6, 21, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. God called for complete annihilation, and Joshua and the nation obeyed. After Joshua, they moved to the next city, the city of Ai. That didn't go quite so well. They go up the first time, and they're defeated, and 36 Israelites died because of the sin of Achan. He had stolen some spoil from the route in Jericho, and he hid it in his tent. He was greedy. He was covetous, and he lied. And they lost the battle because there was sin in the camp, proving that God's blessing was going to be on them when they were obedient. Achan's sin was discovered. Achan and his family are stoned with stones. And when Israel goes to battle a second time, notice the results in Joshua 8, verse 24. They go before Ai for the second time. Joshua 8, verse 24. When all Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, when they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000. All the people of Ai 
But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Now, if there's any confusion about total annihilation and total destruction, just follow the word all. There's five alls in that text. All of Ai, all of the inhabitants, all destruction, all destroyed. But don't forget why. The inhabitants are under God's wrath. They were under his judgment because of their sin. And God did not want his people to follow their ways, to worship their gods, or to be influenced by them in any way. He didn't want their hearts to be turned away from him. If we wanted to, we could continue through the whole book of Joshua and read about battle after battle, conquest after conquest. Joshua was faithful. He was victorious as he led the nation into the promised land. And then for a final concluding statement is Joshua 11, verse 23. A final concluding statement, Joshua 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. You should pause and take a breath. Seventh inning stretch. We're going to get there in a minute. We're just, just... Exhale. We got to where I, I at least wanted to be, for now anyway. We're almost ready to start the book of Judges. The land had been taken in the sense that victory is sure. Each of the 12 tribes of Israel had its own piece of land they inherited. And at this point, the inheritances, the tribal allotments, have been all laid out, and all the people have to do is take what is theirs. That's all they have to do. Apart from the mishap at Ai, because of sin, Joshua conquered every king he fought. In fact, Joshua 12, verses 7 through 24, give a written account of 31 kings that he had defeated. Undefeated, untied, except for the mishap in Ai. So Joshua has victory over the whole land, and now each tribe has to go and take the specific land that was allotted to them as an inheritance. Now, we talked in the past, and we continue to do, about Old Testament types and shadows and pictures that, that are f- fulfilled in the real that we realize the realities of these types, and they're all fulfilled in Christ. And surely we could just pause for a moment and be reminded that the, that the conquest that Joshua was involved in or designed to point to something better, to point to something greater, to point to something more permanent and something eternal. First of all, we know that the name Joshua means Savior, and the New Testament equivalent is the name Jesus. It means God is salvation. His name and his position points to our great Savior, and every battle Joshua won points to the greater greater battle that Jesus will win on the cross. Joshua won the temporal battles over all of his enemies. And Jesus wins the eternal battle over Satan and over sin and over death. The battles that Joshua won and then gave the tribe an allotted inheritance. It has kind of an already not yet fulfillment as we have the same already not yet fulfillment on this side of the cross. In the nation of Israel, God won the battle and he's given each tribe an inheritance. In our lives, the battle's been won. 
the battle against sin and death, and we've been given an inheritance as well. But we're not realizing that until our final fulfillment. We know we have it because of God's promises, but we're not quite there yet. And for us to experience it, we must remain faithful. We don't earn it. We're given at salvation. It's a grace gift. And if you're truly in Christ, you will remain faithful to the very end to keep your inheritance because you're sealed until the day of redemption. And it's the faithfulness of the nation that will allow them into the inheritance that God has promised them. The promise of the land is sure as long as they walk by faith, as long as they keep the covenant, as long as they keep looking to God for help. And if you've never read the book of Judges, and you don't know anything about the book of Judges at all. After the victory Joshua has, and throughout his life as he leads God's people, the biggest question you're going to have when you enter the book of Judges is, will they do it? Will they take the land? Will they take their inheritances? Will they conquer? Will they remain faithful? Will they take what is promised? Especially as we know now that their beloved leader is gone. Let's find out if they do it. Are you guys ready? Joshua 1. Long introduction, but I just want to give a taste of the book of, of Judges. Judges 1, I mean, not Joshua 1. Just a taste of it. Look at verse 1 and 2 again of Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. Now, Judah's prominence and his selection is not accidental. Similar to how Joshua points to a greater Joshua, a greater Savior, since we know that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, we immediately recognize that the tribe's obedience and victory points to the perfect obedience and the greater victory of the Lord Jesus. Verse 2 states that God had given the land into Judah's hand. Verse 4 states that God gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And then verse 19 states that the Lord was with Judah. You know, this right here is almost a continuation of the conquest of the book of Joshua. Joshua is given out their land allotments, and each tribe has to go in and take their land, and God promised he'd be with those who move forward by faith. Judah goes up first by faith, trusting in the promises of God to sustain him as he took the land that was promised. According to verse 3, he did not go up alone. The allotment to the land of Simeon was, was right below Judah. They were neighboring tribes, and they worked together to benefit both of them. In verse 3, Simeon went with Judah. In verse 17, Judah went with Simeon, and they both had victory. And just a couple short verses, we're seeing how God continues to work out his plans. Judah steps out in faith with a fellow brother, reminding us again, in fact, how much we need each other. We don't want to overstate the point. We don't want to neglect it either. And notice what Judah's up against. The Canaanites we're going to see are a force to be reckoned with. And we know this by how many times they're mentioned in chapter 1. You could circle them if you want. The Canaanites are mentioned seven times. You see them in verse 1. You see them in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, 
verse 9, verse 10, and verse 17. And the parasites are mentioned twice. What is the writer of the book of Judges trying to tell us? Canaanites and parasites, enemies, are everywhere. In verse 4, they're in Bezek. In verse 8, they're in Jerusalem. In verse 9, they're in the hill country. They're in the Negev, in the lowland. They're in Ebron in verse 10. They're in Deber. In verse 17, they're in Zephah. And then they're in Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron, the hill country. The author is telling us through the literary form of repetition that the enemy is great. But on the heels of that, he is saying that God is greater. The enemy is powerful, but God is more powerful. No matter how many, no matter how powerful, the promises of God still stand. And God is stating this as he's making it loud and clear. Judah, I've given you the land. Judah, I'll give you your enemy into your hand. Judah, I will go with you. And aren't these our New Testament promises? Doesn't Jesus promise that he'll never leave us? He'll never forsake us? Didn't he promise that when you come to Christ, that the Spirit of God lives in you and you live in him, and that he permanently indwells you? Didn't he promise that nothing will separate you from the love of God? When you see statements like this in the Old Testament where God promises, I will be with you. These are tremendous reminders of him being our shield and our fortress and our strong tower. And to confirm this, and with this I'll close, and we'll come back to this next week. To confirm God's power over his enemies and to confirm that God is with Judah, we're told in these first few verses <clears throat> of great victories over powerful cities, of a great victory over a powerful king, and a great victory over powerful men. In verse 4, Judah and Simeon defeat 10,000 men in Bezek. Beloved, 10,000 men. This is like hand-to-hand -hand combat. This isn't like tanks. This isn't like bombs. This isn't like machine guns. This is 10,000 men, the tribe going along, destroying them completely in hand-to-hand -hand combat. In verse 8, they captured Jerusalem and they set the city on fire. In verse 9, it's the Negev. In verse 10, it's Ebron. The writer's just telling us they had great victory over powerful cities because God promised they would and God was with them. Then in verse 5, Adoni Bezek, very likely the king of the city they just destroyed. This man was powerful and he was ruthless. We know he is powerful because verse 7 states that he had defeated 70 kings. But we know he's ruthless because every one of those 70 kings, he cut off their thumbs and their big toes. And then he mocked. And it humiliated them by having them live the rest of their lives, picking up scraps underneath his table. 
These were wicked, evil men. This is why God had them destroyed. Can, can you think of a more brutal way of incapacitating a warrior king in this century? What, what do you need to hold a shield? What do you need to hold a sword? I think you need thumbs. What do you need to be mobile? What do you need to run? What do you need to conquer? Well, I think, I think you probably could use some big toes. And think for a moment how hard it would be to pick up the food that fell from the table of the king without your thumbs. This is a cruel man, a cruel king, and he acknowledges God's judgment that finally came to him through the people of Judah who cut off his thumbs and his big toes, and then he dies in Jerusalem. And what this is saying is, is as Judah's conquering the land, as he's fighting the enemy, he's annihilating the Canaanites, and God, with God's help, they're disabling anyone and everyone that they came up against. No one can stand in their path. Not even these three sons of Anak, who were giants. Verse 10 actually names them. We'll come back to them again next week. We, we, we know they're giants because of the, of the names of two of them anyway. Shishai, a high man, Talmai. Those are giant names, aren't they? A high man, Talmai. I think you guys are still awake, right? Remember, we read the port earlier, the spies gave, and, and, and they were afraid to go into the land because the sons of Anak were there, the giants, and they were so big, and it seemed like the Israelites were grasshoppers, and Caleb wanted to go in and defeat them, and the ten others said, no, 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 we can't. And here we are, 40 years later, and they get their chance. And these sons of Anak are destroyed. They're defeated, annihilated by the tribe of Judah, simply because God was with them. This is quite a start to the beginning of the book. Judah enters the land they inherited from God by trusting in God's promises, by walking in obedience, and by destroying all the opposition because God commanded it and because God was with them. Now, if you're familiar at all with the book of Judges, you know that after this chapter, recording Judah's mighty conquest, the rest of the book is a complete and utter failure of the nation to keep the covenant. Complete and utter failure to believe God and obey his commands. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. We'll see this next week. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants, and it continues on for the rest of the chapter. And as we study the book, we'll discover the tragic consequences when God's people do not trust and obey God. So why did the author start with Judah's victories over his enemies, knowing that the coming trajectory of unbelief is just going to spiral completely out of control? I can think of two reasons. One, I think it's so as we read the book and think about our own lives, that we can always look back at how it could have been, or better than that, how it should have been, and how it can be right now if they just repent, if they inquire of God, trust his promises, go up as he was com commanded and walk in obedience. Judah didn't have the power. They didn't have the insight. They didn't have the troops to defeat the enemies on their own. 
but they believe the promise. I've given the land into his hands. Judah went up, and the Lord gave. The Lord doesn't give until Judah goes up. We walk by faith, not by sight. This is here to remind the nation and to remind anybody who ever reads the book of Judges and therefore to remind us of the children's song we sing from time to time. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. But along with that, we don't want to miss this. The connection between Jesus and Judah. Knowing that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Knowing that Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience. Knowing that Jesus defeated all of his enemies. Knowing that Jesus is the one who goes before us. And he conquers everyone. Jesus is with us. Jesus has victory. And as we move forward in the book of Judges, we'll continue to see that same theme over and over and over. Let's pray.